invite you this morning to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's wonderful to be back in the pulpit this Sunday after having recovered from sickness and also to be back in 1 Corinthians. Uh, for visitors and those that are fairly new, it'd be good for me to remind you that we have been in a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians now for quite a while. And we're not in any hurry. We don't want to rush through it. We want to get all that God has for us. And if that means taking breaks along the way, then we'll, we're more than welcome to do that. Uh, we're more than happy to do that. Uh, but we do want to see what God has for us through the expositional preaching of his word. And so we come this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as we do, let me remind you that Paul began a section at the beginning of chapter 8 in which he answers the Corinthians' question about eating meat sacrificed to idols. This issue of meat sacrificed to idols was a big deal in the Corinthian church. Paul will spend three chapters dealing with this. He deals with it in chapter 8, 9, 10, all the way to verse 1 of chapter 11. And as part of answering this question, he discusses the relationship between our Christian liberties and the love that we have for the brethren. Uh, And he lays out the principle, you'll remember the sermons I preached in chapter 8, where Paul lays out this principle that there are times when we are called to set our liberties to the side for the sake of the gospel and the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. None of us have to deal with eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's not something that we in 21st century America deal with. But are there other liberties that we have to negotiate and navigate for the glory of God and the good of our brothers and sisters? You better believe there are. Absolutely. And I'm not going to re-preach any of the messages, but in some of those messages we talked about some of them. Some of them that are pertinent to our society and even our church and how we want to be a church that loves one another more than we love our own liberties. We don't want to follow the way of the culture that is infatuated with their own rights and uh, clings to their own liberties and says things like, well, I don't care if you're offended. I have the right to do this. Well, that sounds good in the the political world, but that's not the Christian ethic. You should care very much if your brother or sister is legitimately offended and caused to sin by something that you're doing, even if you're not necessarily sinning simply by doing it. At first glance, though, as we come to chapter 9, it might seem as though that this is kind of disconnected from this topic. Uh, Some commentators suggest that Paul is moving on to a new subject. And I've heard preachers preach chapter 9 as if Paul is moving on, dealing with something different. However, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 9, you'll notice that there is nothing in the text that uh, that indicates any transition in thought whatsoever. Uh, When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he didn't write it with chapter and verse divisions. Meaning that, as he's finishing up chapter 8... He's starting chapter 9, and it's just one continuous train of thought. There's no therefore or now concerning. We've seen that, that in 1 Corinthians, Paul has transitioned his topics by using the phrase now concerning or as touching this, right? Well, we don't see that in chapter 9. There's there's nothing in the text that uh, causes us to think that Paul is moving on. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the text for you. We're going to cover the first 14 verses of chapter 9. 
But I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 of chapter 8. So you can see that this is all one logical progression of thought. And then I want us to examine the first half of chapter 9 in light of the broader context. So 1 Corinthians, beginning at chapter 8, verse 13, through chapter 9, verse 14. These are the words of God. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this, Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather... Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel." There is perhaps nothing more one can say about a preacher to discredit his message than this. He doesn't practice what he preaches. No one wants to listen to a man who calls on others to live in a way that he himself does not live. This is especially true of the difficult realities of the Christian life, such as abstaining from one's Christian liberty For the sake of others. How could a man tell others to limit their liberties if he indulges in all of his without any restraint? Paul was very aware both of this potential criticism and of the way the Corinthians would receive the principles of chapter 8. If you know anything about Paul's writings, you know that Paul is a master rhetorician. He's a master of, of argumentation. And Paul oftentimes anticipates the objection and uh, he goes ahead and answers it before they even have the opportunity to raise it. He's kind of doing that here in chapter 9. In chapter 8, Paul wrote to a church that was obsessed with their rights and enamored with their liberties. And he uses very sharp language in chapter 8 to tell them that when they use their liberties as a stumbling block to others, they are sinning against Christ. 
And he called them to put one another before themselves and lay aside their liberties. Well, having written chapter 8, Paul anticipates their question. Paul's just told them, you need to limit your liberties for love for the brethren. Well, what might their question be to Paul? Well, Paul, what rights are you giving up? What about you, Paul? We, we, we don't see you abstaining from any rights. So what Paul is doing in chapter 9, you ask, how is this connected to this whole argument about meat sacrifice to idols and Christian liberty? How does chapter 9 fit in that puzzle? What Paul is doing in chapter 9 is he is using himself almost in a self-deprecating way as an example of someone who sets their Christian liberties to the side and foregoes their rights for the sake of the gospel and the good of the church. That's what Paul's doing in chapter 9. That's how we need to read chapter 9. The reason why this isn't immediately obvious to us is because Paul takes a very long time to develop this argument. In fact, in the first 14 verses, what we're going to cover today, he barely even gets into the meat of the argument. If you were to listen to this sermon today, and you didn't listen to anything else in this series, if I didn't give this introductory material, you would think that I, I was the last thing I'm talking about is giving up Christian liberties and meat sacrifice to idols. Right? Um, Paul spends the first 14 verses of chapter 9 just setting up this argument. This argument is, is that he is an example of someone who forsakes their rights. That's what Paul's trying to prove. Paul is trying to prove to the church, I'm doing what I'm telling you to do. I am foregoing my rights as an apostle and as a Christian. Well, in order for Paul to prove that, what does he first have to prove? He first has to prove that he, in fact, has such a right. What he's doing in verses 1 through 14 is he's proving that he has such a right. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, I've titled this message, An Example of Liberties Limited. But I could also give you a title, um, A Proof of Paul's Apostolic Right. Okay? The right that Paul uses as an example of self-denial is his right to receive financial compensation for his labors. This is why the first half of 1 Corinthians 9 is often used as a proof text for why a church should pay their pastor. This is why many preachers will preach 1 Corinthians 9 as a standalone sermon, and their whole sermon will be about, you need to pay your pastor. It's not wrong to use that as a text, uh, because that's what Paul will do for the first 14 verses, is he will prove, I have the right to be paid for my work in the ministry. But part of expositional preaching means that I, I can't just isolate a chapter uh, and preach what's there on the surface, but if I'm really going to do exposition, if I'm really going to be an expositor, which I want to be, I need to show you how that's connected to the rest of the book. So I'm trying to show you how this 14-verse argument of paying your pastor is connected to a conversation about Christian liberties and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Do you see the challenge? <laughs> Uh, but when we're careful with the text and when we read it in a big picture, we will understand that Paul is not beginning a new section. No, what Paul is doing 
is he's um, adding on himself as a personal example for this bigger, broader argument. Even though he spends the entirety of 14 verses proving that he has the right to financial compensation, chapter 9 was not Paul's attempt to lobby for a raise. In fact, Paul will say, even though he has this right, he's forsaking this right. So he's not lobbying for a raise at all. Another reason why this is difficult for us is because we live in the Twitter generation. Right? We want Paul to make his arguments in 140 characters or less. And when Paul goes on for a whole chapter just setting up an argument, uh, it can be difficult for us to follow him. So we need to buckle down and we need to stretch our attention spans and we need to read this in the big picture of what Paul is doing. In order to use himself as an example, he makes this ironclad argument that he possesses this right and he cites seven lines of argumentation. There is no place in the Bible where this argument is better proved that ministers of the gospel have a right to financial remuneration. He uses seven different arguments to prove that he has this right. In these 14 verses, Paul employs 15 rhetorical questions. 15 of them. And each of them have very obvious answers. We know the type of questions that Paul's asking. He's asking the type of questions, feller, that your wife asks you when she says, you're not going out of the house with that shirt on, are you? She's not asking a question. She's making a statement when she, when she does that. And Paul, through the use of these rhetorical questions, is making some very pointed and sharp statements. Out of respect to the text, I'm going to do something that I've only done, I think, one other time in this exposition. And I'm going to give you a seven-point outline that's not alliterated. Because I, I felt that to force alliteration here would be to have to forsake what Paul's saying. So let me give you these seven reasons and let us look at them one by one. And as we look at them one by one, we also want to keep in mind that this is all part of a bigger picture. So beginning there in verse number one, as Paul is now proving that he has this right to financial compensation, he begins by arguing from the standpoint of his apostolic office. His apostolic office proves his right to financial compensation. He begins in verse 1 and he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Uh, Paul begins by reasoning that he is an apostle with the rights and liberties of an apostle. When he says, am I not free, he means, do I not have this liberty? Do I not have this freedom? Right? Rights, liberties, freedoms, privileges, kind of synonymous terminology there. And then he, he goes on and he says this, Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Paul asks this question because according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 22, one of the requirements for being an apostle was seeing and witnessing the resurrected Christ. When did Paul see the resurrected Christ? He saw him at his conversion on the Damascus Road. Uh, you could also make the argument that he spent three years with him in the Arabian desert. He says that in Galatians. So Paul was qualified to be an apostle. The apostles saw, they spent three years with Jesus during his earthly ministry and they all witnessed the resurrection and Paul witnessed the resurrection and spent three years in the Arabian desert. Uh, so Paul argues first from the standpoint of the fact that he is an apostle. This, by the way, 
is just one of the several reasons why there are no apostles today. Amen. Uh, I don't care what somebody wants to put on a business card. No, you're not an apostle. You have not witnessed the resurrected Christ. Uh, the church has two offices, pastor, also called bishop or elder, and deacon. Uh, but the office of apostle has ceased and uh, so to have the apostle, uh, apostolic gifts. And we'll, we'll get there when we get to chapter 14. But let's suffice it to, to leave it there for now. Uh, then Paul goes on and he says, Are not ye my work in the Lord? What, what does he mean? What is he asking? Well, he's saying, You know I'm an apostle because I was the man that God used to found the Corinthian church. You can't deny my rights as an apostle. I came here before any of you believed in Christ. And I preached the gospel here in Corinth, and the Lord used me through the preaching to save sinners and plant this church. Paul says, if I be not an apostle to others, meaning there might be some other people that question my apostleship, but doubtless I am to you. There is no doubt that I am an apostle. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. You are the proof that I am uh, an apostle. You know, I, I, to, to, to kind of put that into perspective, uh, I could say something similar. I could say that this church is the seal of my pastoral ministry. Uh, somebody that's never met me, some stranger, uh, they, might, they might see me and I might introduce myself as, as a pastor. I'd, I'd never do that. But uh, if I were to tell them, yeah, I, I pastor a church, they might think, huh, I, I don't know if he's really a God-called pastor. But... I could say, well, this church is a seal of my pastoral ministry. You know um, whether or not I'm the man that God has called to be the pastor here, right? And so Paul is kind of saying the same thing. You are the seal of my apostleship. And he's arguing that because he's an apostle, he has the rights and the privileges of an apostle. And one of those rights is to be supported financially as he gives himself to the ministry. Well, that's just his first line of argumentation. So he argues first from his apostolic office. Secondly, Paul argues from the standpoint of his basic necessities. His basic necessities prove that he has the right and that pastors today have the right to be supported financially by their congregation. Notice he says in verse 3, My answer to them that do examine me is this. Uh, not that there's anyone literally examining him, but kind of, he, he's using a colloquial phrase, basically saying something to the effect of, well, if anybody asks, this is what I tell them. So this is his robust defense, his exhaustive litany of reasons for his right to be paid as an apostle and as a minister of the gospel. And he continues with more rhetorical questions. Now, a helpful feature of earlier languages like Greek and Hebrew was that you could indicate the expected answer, the implied answer, in the way you phrased the question. You, we don't really have that in English. We, we kind of do, but not really like Greek and Hebrew have it. So when we're reading, if you're looking at verse 4, notice where he says, have we not power to eat and to drink? Or verse 5, have we not power to lead about a sister or wife? Um, you could read this as, Surely we have the power to do these things. Surely we have the power. Uh, he's implying the answer in the way that he asks the questions. And the things that he cites are not extravagancies. 
Paul does not say, do not we have the right to a private jet and Armani suits and Gucci handbags? He's not talking about luxury items. He's arguing for the right to be financially supported from the standpoint of his basic necessities. Basic aspects of life that are enjoyed by every church member. Notice he says, Have not we power to eat and to drink? See, when it comes to supporting a minister, there's a ditch on both sides. There are some churches, usually in the prosperity gospel circles, that endow their pastor like a king, and they give him some kind of lavish lifestyle while they live in poverty. I grew up in Clinton County, Georgia, about 15 minutes from World Changers Ministries, which is the, the um, ministry conglomerate of Creflo Dollar. If anybody knows that name. And I can remember as a boy watching the commercials. Clayton County, Georgia, by the way, is a very low socioeconomic community in, in Georgia. The average house com- household income is somewhere around the realms of $24,000. Very poor community. And I can remember watching the commercials as a boy of Creflo Dollar on TV, shedding crocodile tears, talking about, we really need this $7 million Gulfstream jet to further our ministry. And would you consider us financially supporting this because God needs this and we need this for the ministry And Creflo Dollar was living the lifestyle of a millionaire while he was fleecing the pockets of very poor people in the community. We obviously see the terrible problems with that. But in seeking to avoid this pitfall, we must not go so far so as to fall into the other ditch. Because there are also churches that have the unbiblical mindset that those who minister the gospel are not worthy of a just compensation or perhaps not not even worthy of a compensation at all. As if the pastor is required to take a vow of poverty and live far below the means of the rest of the congregation. And what Paul is saying here in verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6 as well, he's saying, if you have the right to go to work and make a living and enjoy the basic necessities of life, then does not a pastor who devotes the same amount of time in the ministry as you do to your employment deserve the same right to receive the basic necessities of life? Most of the time the churches that have this view that a pastor is not worthy of of a compensation, they also have an unbiblical view of the role of a pastor. They, they, they really just want somebody that will come and give a, a motivational talk to them twice a week. And if that's all you have, then I understand why you don't see that he needs any sort of compensation. But if you're a church that expects a pastor to preach expositional, doctrinal sermons week in and week out, and to lead in prayer meeting, and to lead in men's ministry, and to lead in evangelism, and to lead in private counsel, and to lead in the administrative tasks of the church. Paul is saying, if you're expecting a man to 
work for the church full-time and do a full-time job, then doesn't he deserve the same kind of compensation that you receive at your job where you put in full-time hours and dedication? Shouldn't you support your minister so that he has the money to go to the grocery store? That's what Paul's saying. Have we not power to eat and drink? Verse 5, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife? Some translations, I think, a little bit more clear, just says, have we not power to lead about a believing wife? The Greek literally says sister wife, right? But the idea is, is don't we have a power to, to not only have a wife? Paul's not just saying, can I go on apostlematch.com and find a woman? That's not what Paul's saying. No, he's saying to lead her about, meaning that you, you support your wife, you support your family. Don't we have the right to support our families? Um, don't we have the right? And some of this gets into some, some things that I've heard church business meetings have knocked down, drag out debates over. But doesn't the pastor have a right, if he goes on a trip, to take his wife with him and to be able to cover the travel costs, to bring along his help meet in the same way that you would bring your wife along with you if you went on a trip? Paul mentions here that this was the practice of the other apostles. Notice he says, as well as the other apostles. That's why his first argument was proving his apostleship. And the brother of the Lord and Cephas. Who's Cephas? Well, Cephas is Peter. We don't know much about Peter's wife, but we know he had one because in the second chapter of Mark, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. You can't have a mother-in-law unless you have a wife, right? So Paul is saying, look at all the other apostles. They're supported. They have wives. They take their wives with them when they travel. They support their wives. They have money to eat and drink and support their families. Don't we have the same right as they do? And he says, or or I only and Barnabas in verse 5 or in verse 6, have we not power to forbear working? Paul is asking, all of the other apostles provide for themselves through the support they receive from the ministry. Why is it just me and Barnabas that have to work secular jobs to support ourselves? Don't we have the right to forego our jobs? And remember, Paul is not trying to convince the church to pay him. Okay, Paul was willingly a tent maker, but that's what he's trying to prove, that he was willingly a tent maker. He was not obligated to be a tent maker, He had the right to not be a tent maker. He had the right to be supported. But he chose to forgo his liberty. And he's trying to build up this argument so that we can see all that he's forfeiting. And that is a big thing to forfeit. To choose to work with his own hands to support himself in the ministry. And we will see as we go on in chapter 9 why he forgoes that right. But what we're doing in verses 1 through 14 is we're just... We're just building up that argument that he does, in fact, have that right. So Paul goes on. Look at verse 7. The third line of argumentation is an argument from natural law. Natural law. Uh, Paul argues that natural law proves that he has the right to receive financial compensation. What is natural law? Natural law refers to those principles that God reveals to us in creation. Things we receive as law because they are written upon our hearts. You did not need a Bible to know that murder is wrong. You did not need a Bible to know that theft is a sin. 
that was written upon your heart as a human being. And Paul will argue that churches paying their ministers is revealed in natural law. <clears throat> How does he prove that? With <coughs> three examples. He, three examples. The soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd. Which, by the way, a good pastor is all three of those things. A soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? When a man enlists as a full-time soldier in the army, he doesn't have to pay his own way to the battlefield. What a terrible thing it would be for the whole country if soldiers were responsible for purchasing all of their equipment, covering all of their training, and paying all of their travel costs to go to war. How could the soldier ever have any time to fight in the battle? I know we can debate all day about military spending and wars and all that. It's not what Paul's doing here, okay? He's simply making the point He's simply making the point that it's good for society, for us as citizens, to use our tax money or whatever else to pay so that the military can cover all the expenses of the soldiers. So that when somebody enlists in the military, they're not worried about how will I get a gun and how will I be trained and how, how am I going to get to Iraq? I don't know how to get, what's the airfare like to Iraq? They don't have to worry about that. They enlist as a soldier, and all of their needs are taken care of. They're fed, maybe not well, but they're fed. They're clothed. They're given equipment. Their travel expenses are covered in exchange for their services as a soldier. So Paul says natural law reveals that that's what's good for society. So too, Paul argues that it would be counterproductive for a pastor to serve in the gospel ministry at his own charges. His ministry would suffer because he would be serving at his own expense. The plain fact of the matter is, if he's working 40 hours at a secular job to provide for the needs of his family, he's not going to be able to do as much in his service to the church. There's no way around that simple fact. In the same way that if a soldier had to work secular jobs to provide for himself while serving in the military, well, he's not going to be a full-time, devoted, committed soldier. Paul goes on. He says, Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? So he's, now he's using the example of a farmer. The principle here is that the farmer has the right to benefit from his labors. That's the principle. If a farmer plants crops to to then take and sell in the market, no one is accusing the the farmer of, of doing any ill will if he uses some of those crops to feed himself and feed his own family. And when the farmer is able to feed his own family through his work, then he is able to invest more time in growing his crops which in turn is better for the whole community. Thirdly, he uses the argument of a shepherd. Notice he says, or who feedeth a flock 
that's an, that's an important phrase there. Who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock. Here the principle is that the shepherd is responsible for taking care of the flock and the flock is responsible for taking care of the shepherd. It's a mutual relationship. Inasmuch as the pastor feeds the flock of God spiritually, so the church should feed the pastor physically. Both to the best of their abilities. There's no perfect shepherd and there's no perfect flock. Because when they care for him as best as they can, he is able to give his best (coughs) to their care in the ministry. So Paul is arguing from natural law, and he's using these examples to prove that nature teaches us that that's what's best for the economy of a church. And, you know, this really isn't something brand new. Uh, Our Baptist forefathers believed the, the very same thing. Let me read to you a paragraph from the 1689 Confession on this topic in chapter 26 on the church. Chapter 26 in paragraph 10. Notice what they said. They said, The work of pastors being constantly to attend the service of Christ in his churches, in the ministry of the word and prayer, with watching for their souls as they that must give an account to him. So they start their argumentation by highlighting the large responsibility that a pastor is called to. If any pastor says, well, I, I want to go be a pastor because it's just an easy job. I just, you know, prepare uh, a sermon on Sundays and a little talk on Wednesdays and bada boom, bada bing, I've done my work. It's not what the Bible teaches the work of a pastor is. It's someone who must be constantly engaged in the service of Christ because he's going to be asked to give an account. They go on, they say, it is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them, that means um, in 1600s language, that means to financially provide for them of all their good things according to their ability. And that's an important principle that we really haven't talked about and don't have much time to get into, but all of this is according to the ability of the church. The Bible never puts a number on how much a church is required to support their minister. Some churches that are smaller, that are just starting out, such as this one, obviously aren't able to do what other churches can. And a church, there's a practical limit in which a church should say, okay, we're doing our duty and we don't need to do any more. A lot of that has to do with location. For instance, a pastor in Reno, for instance, would probably need a a larger salary than a pastor in Paris, Tennessee, simply because it's a lot more expensive to live in Reno. So when I hear of a pastor, I know of a pastor in Los Angeles that makes $120,000 a year. Well, that's not really all that astronomical. It would be if he was pastoring in Cottage Grove, Tennessee, maybe, but not so much in Las Vegas or, or, or Los Angeles where the living expenses are so much. So the principle is the churches should support their minister to the best of their ability. Notice this. So as they may give, or some, as they may have a comfortable supply without themselves being entangled in secular affairs. That's the point. The point is, we don't want our pastor to be entangled in secular affairs. We want him to give all of his time and all of his attention to the church and the work that God's called him to do. Amen. Uh, so that he may also be capable of exercising hospitality toward others. And this is required by law of nature. So there it is. They believe that this was required by the law of nature. 
and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So it's really not all that complicated of an argument. If you have a faithful man who is faithfully serving in the pastorate, it's better for the whole church for him to be able to give his undivided attention to the work of the ministry. Imagine if you had to go to the hospital and you had to receive a life-saving brain surgery. And you met with your surgeon and you said to your surgeon, tell me about where you learned to operate on brains. And he said, well, you know, I really didn't have any formal education. I watched a couple YouTube videos and I read a book. Okay, well, surely you've had a lot of practical experience. Well, kind of. I mean, I do brains on the weekend. Monday through Friday, I work my secular job. I just do brains on the weekend. I volunteer. How, how comfortable would you be receiving a life-saving surgery from someone like that? No, you want someone that says, I have been professionally trained and I devote all of my time to operating on brains. I do it Monday through Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And it's, it's my passion. It's my calling in life. It's what I live for. It's what God put me on this earth for. And through my service in operating on brains, I receive support so that I'm able to devote myself to it. That's the guy you want working on your brain. Well, how much more so the guy, the man, called of God to minister to your soul? That's the argument that Paul is making. This argument from natural law. But we still have a few more. I'll go through them quickly. Fourthly, Paul makes an argument from Old Testament law. So we've seen the argument from natural law. That is the things revealed in creation. Now we're about to see some things revealed in the black and white pages of scripture. Okay, Old Testament law. Verse 8, Paul says, Say I these things as a man, meaning... Am I just using natural arguments? Do we not have any clear, explicit, non-negotiable teaching in God's word for this? And the answer is, of course we do. He says, or saith not the law the same also. So natural law always agrees with revealed biblical law. And we find in verse 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses. Well, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you were talking about the New Testament church. Why are you referring back to Moses? Paul is referring back to Moses because he wants to show us that this isn't some temporal new covenant principle. This is a principle rooted in the unalterable, unchanging moral law of God. Not only does natural law require it, but even the special revelation in the written word teaches this principle as well. And what is the principle? The principle is this in verse 9. Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Huh? How did we get from talking about pastors to talking about livestock? Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, which teaches that an ox has the right to eat as he pulls the plow. So as an ox is in the field and he's pulling the plow and the, the grain is being harvested, the ox has a right, because he's the one pulling the plow, he has the right to put his head down in the ground and get a mouthful of grain. The farmer, it was against the law in Old Testament Israel for the farmer to put a muzzle over the mouth of the ox 
and prevent him from eating. But then Paul asks this important question at the end of verse 9. Doth God take care for oxen? Well, of course God takes care for oxen. God's the greatest humanitarian, better than all of the, the PETA people could ever dream of being. But the question really is, does God only care for oxen? When God wrote that law in Deuteronomy 25, was he just thinking about oxen or did he have something greater in mind? He had something greater in mind. Verse 10, or saith he it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. Which, by the way, is why all of the Old Testament was written. This is not just the doctrine of the zoo. This is the doctrine of the church. That he that ploweth should plow in hope. And he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. What does it mean to plow in hope? To plow in hope for the ox meant that he knew, the ox knew that as he labored, his needs would be met. He did not have to worry about, well, once I get done plowing this field, how am I going to go find food? The ox knew that as I plow this feed, as I plow this this field, my needs will be met. I will have food. So the general equity of that law then applies to ministers in the New Testament. When the gospel minister's physical needs are taken care of, he is able to give himself fully and unreservedly to the work of the ministry. How much more can an ox focus on the task of plowing the field? How much more can a pastor focus on the work of the church when he's able to give himself fully to it and not even have to worry about, am I going to have enough money to pay my bills at the end of the week? That's the principle. And Paul says, he goes on in verse 11, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing? Meaning, is it really so much to ask? I'm not asking for a million dollar salary. I'm not asking for a private jet, Paul says. He's just saying, is it so much to ask that if we're devoting all of our time to feed you spiritually and administer to you spiritually, is it so much to ask that we reap your carnal things, material support? Paul is... Not done. He's building up this bulletproof defense for his right so that the Corinthians can see all that he's forfeiting. And there's three left. So, fifthly, in verse 12, we see the Corinthian practice. The Corinthians were already doing this. If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather... Notice that Paul calls this right to receive financial remuneration a power. It's not just an added bonus. It's a power. It's a right that we have as ministers of the gospel. Um, A a church planter is not acting selfishly when the church gets established and he says, okay, let's establish a pastor's budget, a salary or a budget for the pastor's salary. That's not selfishness. He has the power, the right to that because it's good for the whole church. With the Corinthians' infatuation for certain preachers and teachers, it shouldn't surprise us that they did, in fact, support others who ministered unto them. So Paul appeals to their own current practice. What he's saying in verse 12 is that if anyone has the right 
to be supported by the Corinthians, it's him and Barnabas. Because they were the one who did all the heavy lifting. They were the ones who came and founded the church. But then Paul says, tying into his big point, nevertheless, we have not used this power, but we suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. How might it hinder the gospel of Christ if Paul were to be financially paid by the Corinthians? Well, many ways. Due to his position as a church planting, traveling apostle and not a full-time permanent pastor. And we'll see later in this chapter how he will lay all of that out. So he uses the Corinthians practice. Sixthly, old covenant presidents. Verse 13. He says, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? In God's appointment, how did he care for priests in the Old Testament? Were there any bivocational Levitical priests? No, there weren't any bivocational Levitical priests. The priests were fed through a portion of the meat that was sacrificed, and they were supported through a portion of the tithes that were given. In fact, the whole tithe system was all for the Levites in the Old Testament. So Paul is using this Old Covenant precedence. And seventhly, and finally, Paul culminates his argument with the most compelling defense for a minister's right to be supported. If we didn't have any of these other six, this seventh one would prove this right. The seventh argument is an argument from the ordinance of Christ. Why should churches pay their pastors? Why should gospel ministers be supported financially? Because Jesus said so. Look at verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Jesus taught that. Where did he teach it? Matthew 10, verses 9 through 10. Jesus told his disciples, Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor copper in your money belts, nor bags for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Luke 10, 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. When a man comes and preaches in our pulpit, and we give them Uh, we give them a love offering. That's not a gift that we're giving them. We want to be generous with the men who stand and preach in this pulpit. Because Jesus said, a laborer is worthy of his wages. He's worthy of his hire. In fact, if God so meticulously designed and made provision for Old Testament ministers, which ministered under a covenant that was a shadow of things to come, and a temple that was anticipatory to the New Covenant Church, should not ministers of the New Covenant, who minister an even better covenant, receive an even better compensation in accordance with their ministry? I think that's what Paul is saying when he says, even so, in verse 14. Inasmuch as... God took care of his ministers in the Old Covenant. Even so, he's going to take care of them 
in the new covenant. Jesus has ordained it. So as we come to the end of verse 14, <coughs> we finish Paul's seven-tiered argument to prove the validity of this right. And I know that you probably feel like you've been fed with a fire hose this morning. And this was a lot to get through. But I didn't want to break up Paul's argument. And I didn't really want to preach on paying a pastor two Sundays in a row. Okay, It does get awkward. I'm just being honest with you. But you know what? The Word of God teaches it. And we ought never feel awkward or ashamed about something that the Word of God teaches. So let me close with a personal testimony, a practical consideration, and a summary of this overall argument. So first, I'll give you a personal testimony, okay? Just as Paul did not preach this sermon because he was lobbying for a raise, that's not why I've preached this sermon, okay? Um, I preached it, number one, because it's in the text, and we're going through 1 Corinthians. And that's one of the blessings of expository preaching. No one can accuse you of preaching a message at them. I'm just going through the text, brother. But I am very thankful for God's provision to our church, and I'm grateful that he meets the needs of our family so that we're able to more fully give ourselves to the work that he's called us to do. And if anyone at this church ever feels that we are not fulfilling our obligations, that we are not fulfilling the work that we're being compensated for, I want you to address that with me. Because I, I don't ever want to hinder the gospel or, or hinder the testimony of the church by being a laborer who's not worthy of his hire. Several of you have commented that you've noticed some positive changes since I've been able to step away from full-time work, secular work. You've noticed that the, the Wednesday nights, for instance, have just seemed a little bit less distracted, and I'm not dozing off during the prayer time. And you know, uh, that's true, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm glad that we're able to do more evangelism, and we're able to be in the nursing home ministry, and we're able to have the men's book and breakfast, and... And I thank God that he is able to make all of that work. And I trust that as we continue to trust in God's provision, God will continue to provide. So there's a personal testimony. This is not me <clears throat> trying to convince you of some of this. As a matter of fact, I think all of you, I know all the members of this church, believe all of this. Secondly, a practical consideration. This matter of churches supporting their pastor is an area where Baptist churches, by and large, have room for a lot of improvement. One of the greatest blessings a church can have is a member or as a minister who loves them and shepherds them and cares for their soul and does not have to sacrifice that time and that devotion to the ministry because he has to work a full-time secular job to provide for his family. Now, I understand that there is the case in many churches that are just too small to support a pastor. That, that, is, that happens. I understand that's the case. There's nothing that the Bible forbids about a man working by vocationally. However, the desire of the church should be to have a full-time minister. That should be the desire of the church. And the desire of, of ministers in most cases should be to be full-time. It should be to give themselves over to the church to relinquish that, what they could be doing in the secular world. Because I'll tell you this, if you want to make a lot of money, being in full-time ministry is not the decision for you. There's a lot of safety and there's a lot of security in full-time work. But part of serving the Lord means relinquishing that security and trusting in His 
provision. But what do we have all across the country? We have Baptist churches without pastors. And it's especially a problem, I believe, because we don't have a full-orbed understanding of what we've been talking about this morning. That it's the church's responsibility to support a minister. I'm going to say something that may seem controversial, but I believe with all my heart that it's true. It pains me. Anytime I see a smaller church that sends thousands of dollars a year to overseas missionaries or sends thousands of dollars a year to the cooperative program while their pastor is working two jobs just to put food on the table and also shepherd their souls. And they'll say, well, we participate in global evangelism. Well, pat yourself on the back because you're sure not doing anything in your own community. And if you want to send an anonymous $50 a check check every month to China and say that you're doing missions and you don't do any evangelism in your own community or any discipleship in your own church because you have a pastor that's working 40 hours a week and it's all he can do to scrounge together a sermon on Sunday morning, I don't really think we're, we're following the heart of the Great Commission. And this issue hits close to home because I encounter it so frequently and I have men that I know and love that are in similar situations. And they tell me, well, you know, I'm, I'm taking a second job to make it through the holidays. My, you know, I'm working a full-time job and I'm taking a second... Well, brother, you pastor a church that's three times the size of mine. Aren't they able to do... Well, yeah, but you know, we don't want to cut that cooperative program budget. That's a problem. Because Paul says that ministers have the power to be supported by their congregation. And then there's the other end. Sometimes it's not the church's fault. I've also met men, and I know of a man, who who makes six figures a year at a secular job. He pastors a church that probably could support him at forty or 50000 a year, but he's making six figures at a secular job, and he's talking about all the sacrifices he makes. Well, you know, I'm not like you full-time guys. I, I, you know, I'm, I make sacrifices. I work hard. What's really the sacrifice? Working to make way more money than you need? Or sacrificing financially and choosing a life living humbly so that you can be full-time in the service of Christ and the service of His church? Now, I I can't make decisions for other men. I certainly can't make decisions for other churches. But I think that we all need to consider the practical aspects of what Paul is saying in chapter 9. And let me close by bringing this section full circle. What we have seen is this imminent right that Paul has to receive financial compensation. And as we continue chapter 9 in the weeks to come, we will see how he has gladly forfeited this right. He has chosen, he has forfeited this right for the sake of the gospel and the good of the church. Naturally, we all desire to cling to our own rights. Only by God's grace can we relinquish them for his glory and the good of his people. And so I ask you, what liberties, what Christian liberties have you abstained yourself from For love of the brethren and love of the gospel. For some of you, it may be something as significant as financial compensation. 
It may be a pleasure that you enjoy, that there's nothing sinful about enjoying it, but you gladly forego that liberty for the good of the church and the glory of God. The point of this chapter is not just paying pastors. The point of this chapter is living our lives in a sacrificial way so that God receives ultimate glory from all that we do. And so we pray, may God give us the grace to follow this example, love one another more than we love our liberties. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for this text. You know, Lord, sometimes passages of Scripture don't um, excite us and thrill us the way other passages do, and perhaps this is one of those passages, but yet it's so practical and it's so plain and it's so straightforward, and I'm glad that we were able to consider it this morning. I trust that you gave me the liberty to preach it well and accurately, and I thank you for this church and where we're at and the heart that we have uh, to, to serve you and to follow your word. Lord, I, I'm not just making arguments from my own opinions as to why churches should pay pastors. I'm, I'm simply just uh, highlighting and preaching the arguments that you've given us in the Bible. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to Scripture and to be conformed to the image of Christ as he's revealed himself in his word. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.